next point from verse 2, it teaches us something fascinating and bold, I would say, about God's will and His sovereign control. The second point teaches us how we must always live under God's rule and sovereign control, wherever we are. I break this loosely into verses 1 to 7 and then 8 onwards. So, verses 1 to 7, under the summary heading that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. These verses spell utter carnage to the pride and strength of the people of Israel. Uh, But verse 2 tells us that this carnage is the will of God. Jehoiakim was never a great king. He reigned under the hand of Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, so he wasn't even a king in his own right. He was was placed there uh, by Pharaoh of Egypt uh, and he taxed his own people to pay Egypt's levies. Meanwhile, to the east, Babylon is rising and King Nebuchadnezzar marches south and he crushes Egypt and Egypt is never again to rise as a superpower after King Nebuchadnezzar. Historically speaking, he is the one who squashes Egypt as a superpower. However, the fact that Egypt is now crushed does not relieve Jehoiakim of his pressures because Jehoiakim, remember, was serving the Pharaoh of Egypt. But on his way back to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to Jerusalem and Jehoiakim folds under the pressure. And this much we can piece together from other books of the Bible uh, as well as history books uh, alongside that. But what we learn in Daniel 1 is, uh, is the price exacted by Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to Jerusalem uh, and when they cave, uh, he exacts a price. The rest of verse 2 says that Jehoiakim hands over some of the articles from the temple of God. So that he's handing over the riches. And these articles from the temple of God get carried off to the temple of Nebuchadnezzar's God in Babylonia. So the great city of Jerusalem has been breached and God's treasures become the treasures of another God who is no God at all but a false idol. This looks and smells a lot like defeat with a heavy garnish of humiliation. Then we also learn that Nebuchadnezzar drains Jerusalem's palace of one of her richest resources, uh, their finest noblemen. Verse 4, young men without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning and competent to stand in the king's palace. These are the people uh, that Nebuchadnezzar takes with him, the very best, the cream of the crop, from one palace to another, from one temple to another. Then there's a little insult on top of this as well, these Israelite men are given Babylonian names, they are now owned by, by another. Let me show you something about the names of the four people we're introduced to. Uh, have a look at their names, I think they appear in verse 6. Daniel, Mishael, uh, Hananiah and Azariah. Daniel and Mishael end in El, E-L, which is short for Elohim, which is the Hebrew word for God. And you will notice this, if you can identify that, you will see that appear again and again in the names of the Old Testament. Um, Daniel and Mishael, they are named after their own God. Hananiah and Azariah end in Ayah, or, or Ah, or Yah, from Yahweh, the name of the Lord. Again, named after 
their covenant God. And so in this renaming ceremony, you can see that their Jewish heritage is being erased, overlaid with new names uh, and with new teaching. A new wisdom is about to be imparted on them. So let me come back to verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Wasn't it remarkable that God would allow this? But more than that, not, he didn't just allow it, God ordained and arranged it. He gave them into his hand. Let me lay just a few planks down to help us understand uh, how this works. The first thing, uh, and this is really important, and, th- and this clarifies an, an awful lot actually. The first plank is this. This is judgment. This is judgment on Israel. And it's not without warning, okay? And it's not without explanation. Daniel chapter 1 hasn't fallen out of the sky and we're reading it going, wow, what a cruel God. It sits in a book, the Bible, that gives us its own context. Uh, let me read you... Um, a summary from 2 Chronicles, chapter 36. This is a reflection at the end of 2 Chronicles uh, on these times and, uh, and sort of these events. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans uh, is Babylonia. It's It's another word. Let me be clear. This is judgment in Daniel chapter 1. But this is not to say that every individual's experience of misfortune is God's divine judgment. This scenario that's unfolding in Daniel 1, however, is. It is God's divine judgment. God's judgment does not fall without warning or without almost endless opportunities to repent. But it also falls most heavily on those who ought to have known better. These are God's covenant people. God sent them wave after wave of prophets with words and teaching and warnings and exhortations. They have his words in his book. And from greatest to least, they've been trained to keep God's words uh, and his own words are on their lips because of the way they they were trained from childhood. But their hearts are far from God. This is judgment that's happening, uh, plain and simple, when God delivers Uh, the the kingdom of Jerusalem uh, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. That's one plank. It is judgment. It's not always judgment when misfortune strikes, but this one really is. It's it's made really clear. Second, um, from our song that we just sang, you give and take away. You give and take away. It's this, God is in control in all things in one way or another. God is in control in all things, in one way or another. Sometimes God intervenes with miracles. That's God exercising his control. When the natural order of cause and effects unfolds, that's God too, because he arranged the causes and the effects that would fall from them. He imprinted his order into all the mechanisms and actions in this world. Science, as wonderful as it is, is the cause and effect and impact of God's order working more often than not, like clockwork in this world. 
Sometimes the Bible teaches us that God deliberately distances himself from certain scenarios, allowing consequences to come home to roost, being less active in a sense and more passive, allowing certain things to happen. But even then, the Bible is very quick to remind us that God is there, he is the chief agent, even as he is the one allowing certain things, he really is the master of all things. God is in sovereign control in all things in one way or another. But the third plank I'm going to lay down here, and this is the last one, is this. God isn't afraid to lose. He's not afraid to lose because he can't lose. In the case of this point in history, God is faced with a terrible choice. He has chosen and set apart a people who carry his name and who own his temple. But they follow other gods and they live worse lives than the people around them. His people who are supposed to be a light, shining the glory of God, have become an embarrassment. God's terrible choice is this, either one, let his people carry on just as they are, bringing shame to his own name as they do it, or two, let his people be beaten, also bringing shame to his own name. But God's not afraid to lose. History in the Bible tells us that at different times God does both of these two things. In his patience, he allows things to carry on. In fact, it's still up there on the screen there. Uh, God's exercise in patience uh, and perseverance uh, to allow um, things to carry on, giving people ample opportunity to repent. But if they don't, it brings shame on God's good name. When that time has passed, well, his people must learn even if it means their loss and their destruction and God's own shame again in the process. Like having the treasures of his temple adorn the temple of another God in far-off Babylonia. But let me build just a little more on this idea that God is not afraid to lose. Ultimately, God's glory is unthreatened. It can never be diminished. And we see this in his awful humility and courage in Jesus. Jesus allowed the shame of this world to stick to him. He got his hands dirty. He suffered the physical and social agony of being executed for a crime he never committed. He did that taking the consequences of the sins of the world and dragging them with him down into the grave. So that when Jesus rose, we would know that sin and death have been defeated and we might put our trust in him. Yes, God brings judgment. And in certain ways in the past, he has brought it on his own people. But he reserved the greatest suffering for himself when he offered his own flesh for sacrifice. So when we reflect on verse 2, that God gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Remember this, remember that God's glory is unassailable and unthreatened no matter what. And remember this as well, that this God also gave his own son into the hands of the enemy and his son went willingly and he did it to save you. He's not a cruel and vindictive God. He is full of patience, grace, mercy uh, and generosity as he gives even himself for our salvation. 
come into the second, I'll call it a half, I know it's more than a half, from verse 8 to the end. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. Daniel himself is left with a terrible choice in his new circumstances. He can either be crushed by the hopelessness of it all, and it's, it's feeling pretty hopeless in one sense. You know, if, if his identity is caught up in, in the well-being of his nation, then this is not a good look. He's been reefed from his nation. They're crippled. They're crumbling. Or he can grab with both hands the opportunity that has fallen in his lap. Not every person is a nobleman whose, you know, great misfortune is to be landed into a palace, eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine and having the king's training and to, you know, be fast-tracked for promotion in the king's service. But that's a temptation in, in its own right for Daniel, isn't it? Daniel chooses neither option. Daniel is resolved to do all he does for the glory of God. So that means he will work with all his might to learn and shine God's superior light in the dark land he finds himself in. He will overshadow in greatness and in learning everyone around him, if that's what it means, uh, to, uh, to worship the Lord and to promote God's superior wisdom. But he's also resolved that he will not be defiled or soiled by the fresh temptations of this land. Back in verse 5, we learn that one of the privileges thrust on Daniel and his friends is to eat the food prepared in the same kitchen as the king's food. And this is the hill that Daniel chooses to die on. The whole of verse 8 says, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, this might seem strange to us at first. Why is, why is food the thing, the battle that he picks? This is especially strange to me. It takes, a, it takes a lot for me, personally, to get my head into this. I am one of the lucky ones who doesn't have any food intolerances or allergies. There's also very few foods I don't like. I just, I like to eat. And please don't hate me for this, but at this point in my life, it's still easier for me to lose weight than it is for me to gain it. And I don't lose it by dieting or exercise, I lose it by accident. It just falls off. I've never once tried. I do exercise, but it just, it's what happens to me. Now, I say all this only to say that for me, food is a playground. There's no anxiety, there's nothing to fear, food is easy. No angst attached whatsoever. And now I acknowledge that I occupy one extreme end of a spectrum, Okay. I'm probably not entirely on my own, but that's one extreme end. Out ahead of me are people who struggle uh, with weight and with allergies and with anxiety uh, and crippling eating disorders. Food is a tricky subject for a lot of people. People order their life around their food, not just the three meals a day, but uh, the calories they're taking in, uh, the sugar that they're afraid of, uh, checking ingredient lists for allergens, or worrying about what others will think when, of them when, they, when they're observed eating in public. So food can carry a, a, a really heavy weight and occupy a huge amount of space in people's minds. I don't need to tell you this. But again, I say this with no judgment attached, but to take you uh, on a journey to somewhere way out in the distance again, beyond probably everyone in this room, so that we can begin to imagine 
what is attached to food for Daniel and other devout Jews. See, the Jews held a few things very tightly to their own identity. The land they occupied, circumcision for the men, and their food laws. And their food laws are pretty intense. They take up a lot of space in the Bible. Now, if you're a Jew living among Jews, surrounded by other people, also obeying the food laws, it's not super tricky. You know, you, you don't eat pork, you don't eat shellfish, uh, and you, you know, your kitchens are arranged and your pantries are arranged to support these needs. But if you're a Jew who has had this attached so closely to your identity and you get landed in another place and your food is being prepared in a foreign kitchen by people who you know share diets that are radically not only different but opposed in principle to the diet you've known, it's a scary place for Daniel and his mates to be. It's not just that they would be exposed to foods and flavours and textures that they'd never tried before, but they knew they would be served gods that were deemed unclean by their own holy law. So Daniel faces another terrible choice. It's either to embrace the privileges of the king's royal kitchen, which he could do, and probably some of his fellow noblemen did, or it's to the other extreme, to go on hunger strike and say, I will not eat this food and I will die before I eat it. Or possibly to find some sort of tricky middle ground and to do himself moral injury by knowingly sinning against God and eating the food. But Daniel's resolve and wisdom leads him to another plan of action, humble and diplomatic negotiation. First in verse 8, he uh, approaches the chief eunuch, the, the head official. This man, we learn, has a soft spot for Daniel. He's, he, he thinks he's probably a good guy. He wants to do right by Daniel and his friends, but he's got an even softer spot for his own head, which he's afraid will be in danger. Uh, if he disobeys the king's orders. Daniel isn't put off. Instead of climbing the chain of command upwards, he goes to the place where the real power lies. He climbs down the chain of command to the chief official's steward. He's the guy who's handling the food after all. He's, you know, let's cut out all the other people. Let's get straight to business. Daniel strikes a deal with the steward that the steward will smuggle Daniel and his friends vegetables and water in place of pork and wine. And after 10 days, if Daniel and his friends seem worse off, then the deal is off. And presumably, I think Daniel's not thinking plan B is hunger strike. I think he's thinking probably he will eat the king's food. Or maybe he's just so confident in his plan that there is no plan B. He is just so assured and that's probably the better, the better path. But at the end of 10 days, Daniel and his friends look fine. Better than fine, they look better, as it says, fatter, plumper, uh, than the men treating themselves to the king's plate. So Daniel wins for himself a a lifetime supply of vegetables and water. (laughs) Not much of a reward in one sense, is it? But it's a cost that he pays, and it pays for him uh, dividends. There is a valuable lesson in Daniel's behaviour here. Daniel resolved to not defile himself. We are also surrounded by the temptations and the trappings of a world that is trying to lure us in. Are you resolved to not defile yourself? Or do you 
happily and willingly defile yourself? Or do you give it no thought at all? Do you simply go with the flow? Is this a brand new thought that I may have to exercise restraint in life? I thought life was about living and experiencing and testing and trying and tasting. Friends, what have you let in? I'm going to talk about one particular application point here. Television and screens. Think about streaming services like Netflix, Disney, etc. for a moment. The world's best and worst is being piped into your living room. And our resolve is so weak. It's just so easy, isn't it, to sit there and hit play. And to find your appetite has only been whetted by the episode or movie you've watched and so you scan for the next episode or movie to watch. It's not just the content, it's the money. Can you afford it? It's not just the money, it's the time. Can you afford the time in front of the screen? Now proudly... Uh, We don't have a streaming service in our house. ABC iView provides all the British detective drama I need. But does that make me better than anyone here who, who does? Absolutely not. Because without godly resolve, let me tell you, YouTube and Facebook provide more than enough avenues for time wasting and poison consumption. Friends, let's be discerning. Entertainment is art. Right? There's, things, there's good things to enjoy. Enjoy the stories and, and enjoy the experience of quality shows and movies. But don't make yourself fat and lazy on them. Don't weaken your mind with consumption. Strengthen it with exercise. Now look, I've picked on one thing. Your own personal battleground might not be with screens. The principle is the same. Be resolved. Choose resolve. Don't defile yourself. Pay attention to what the world is inviting you to enjoy and consider whether it may cause defilement of some sort. Be brave enough to be a bit different. Within your own family, it may be as simple as being the one in your family who goes to church on Sundays or being the sibling who builds up their brothers and sisters instead of always pulling them down. In your workplace, it may mean being the person who disengages from gossip, who goes above and beyond in their projects, who cleans up their language when others don't. Daniel found himself in a palace, a place of strange privilege, but not without temptation. His personal project was to be faithful to the Lord his God, even in a foreign place. And that is our project too. And the place we're in can seem pretty foreign sometimes too. Now to finish up, we learn in the final verses that that at the end of their training period, Daniel and his friends turn out to be the brightest and best of the bunch. Now don't fear. There's no indication that this is because of their vegan diet. Verse 17 makes it really clear what's responsible for their success. God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Back in verse 2, God gave them into the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar. 
But God continues to give. He is the agent. He is always in control. God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And to Daniel in particular, he gave understanding in all visions and dreams. Visions and dreams is going to be a big theme coming up in in later chapters, starting next week, actually. Especially in the case... um, especially in the case of Daniel's visions and dreams, it's plain that this wisdom is the supernatural gift of God. God's blessing to his faithful servants and even God's blessing to the nations at large as God's light begins to flicker and catch on in Babylon through Daniel and his, and his mates. But let me also say this about wisdom. Wisdom is a supernatural gift from God, particularly in here. But let me also say this. Wisdom isn't rocket science, people. It's not. It might sound grand and unattainable, like for only for the very, very bright, but it has a really basic starting point. The Bible says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Daniel's resolve to not defile himself in Babylon is evidence that he fears and trusts the Lord over and above this mighty king and his officials. This was the beginning of his wisdom. You almost don't need verse 17 to say that God blessed them with wisdom. You can see Daniel's wisdom uh, emerge when he is resolved to be righteous. Friends, righteousness is wisdom, not not intelligence, not, um, not, you know, just trying to do the right thing, trying to obey God, seeking to not be defiled and to follow him. That is where wisdom flows from. We also happened to read, this wasn't necessarily by design, but we also happened to read this morning, uh, or Lauren read for us from from Luke chapter 4, when Jesus uh, was tested in the wilderness. And there is an almost parallel here, isn't there, between uh, Daniel's testing uh, and the temptations that were before him. Did you notice the second temptation for Jesus uh, was that he was placed before all the kingdoms of the world? All this could be yours, the devil said. And here's Daniel, he's been taken out of little old fading Jerusalem and popped into the great kingdom of the great Nebuchadnezzar, the the super power of the day. And some of this, if he really does well, could, could even become some of his. But these were men who were not drawn away. Friends, uh, we all sin. Uh, We are all drawn away. We are all defiled. We have all fallen short. Daniel's example is pretty inspiring, yeah? Jesus' example is more inspiring still, but Jesus' life itself has been given for you. Jesus' life of perfection and righteousness has been given for you so that it may be ours. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you will bless this journey through the book of Daniel. Uh, We pray that you will open uh, up our eyes to see what you would teach us. Uh, Help us to see your glory in all things. Help us to grow uh, in confidence uh, of your your command, uh, your power, your sovereign will. Help us to to appreciate your providence uh, and your provision. Father, help us also uh, to be resolved. Uh, Help us to pay attention and to be discerning. May we find wisdom as we seek to do 
what is right more than what is clever. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you particularly for your son, whose righteousness is ours because he gave it to us. We pray that uh, in Jesus you will help us to lead the lives uh, that you would have us lead. Amen.